We come to the preaching of God's Word this morning. So please take a copy of the Scriptures and turn to the New Testament letter of Philippians. And we'll look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Verses 14 through 18. The primary exposition, the main focus of our study this morning will be on verses 14 through 16. We'll read those four verses. Verse 14 begins with a very clear, very strong imperative. By imperative, I mean it's a command. This is something that we're supposed to do. It says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. It's comprehensive. It's demanding. But the apostle who delivers it by inspiration of the Holy Spirit is speaking from experience. He has learned joy and contentment in all circumstances. And here he is writing while imprisoned, and yet he has learned to rejoice in his circumstances instead of grumbling. And the apostle who's delivering throughout the letter demonstrates that everything he has to say to this church at Philippi is coming from a deep concern for their well-being. And so this command comes from that place. And there's for two reasons that he, he is so determined to communicate the importance of this imperative. The first is that this imperative relates to their unity. Beginning in the instruction portion of this letter that we looked at last week in chapter 1, verse 27, the apostles laying out for them that they are to be of one mind and a united front for the cause of the gospel. And then in the beginning of chapter 2, then he lays out, but in order for the Christians to do that, it will require humility, preferring one another, for them to remain one-minded together. And how does he then point them to what is the impetus, what is the motivation, where is their model for that? Well, it's the cross itself. It is the obedience of Christ in his humiliation that they are then to model in their relationships in the church for the sake of the unity of the church. And having pressed them with the obedience of Christ as displayed in the cross, he then in verse 12 says, therefore you obey whether I am with you or I'm absent. Therefore you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to do for his good pleasure. And so as he is instructing them, what is the, the first obedience with the mind of being united for the cause of the gospel? Is that then do all things without grumbling or disputing. So this command is for the sake of their unity, but it's not just for the sake of their unity. What we'll see in this passage is that it's for the sake of their witness. That they do all things without grumbling or disputing. It's for the sake of the witness of the church in the generation and the darkness in which they find themselves. Before we read our passage, let's go to the Lord and ask for his help this morning again to hear his word proclaimed. Lord, you are holy, you are righteous, you are faithful. Your word is holy, righteous, and faithful. In you, Lord, we take refuge. Help us each take refuge in your word. As lies surround us on every side, we remember that your words are pure words, like silver refined in the furnace on the ground, purified seven times. 
Your word is inspired. It's inerrant. You, O Lord, will keep your word, and by your word, you will guard us. So now we pray and ask for a word and spirit wrought revival in our community and in this nation. And we ask that it would begin in our hearts. So help us to receive, apply, and hold fast the word of life that we may shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, glorifying you, growing in your grace. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Hear the word of God from Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 14 through verse 18. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Amen. And that ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. Every two years, Ligonier Ministry uh, puts out the results of a survey that they do through a research firm. It's called the State of Theology. There was one in 2016, 18, and then one was conducted last year in 2020. For the most recent one, 3,000 Americans were surveyed, and here was the conclusion, and this has been one of the predominant conclusions every time they have conducted this state of theology. After looking at the information that comes in on the surveys, it says this, the 2020 state of theology survey reveals widespread confusion in the United States about the Bible's teaching. I know what you're thinking. I don't think we needed to survey 3,000 people to find that out. That's pretty evident. But it's true. It's, it's beyond anecdote. It's, it's something here that it's the conclusion of researchers as well. I encountered this recently witnessing to a man this past December. He expressed doubts about Christianity and the Bible. And as he was trying to articulate why he was not a Christian, it quickly became apparent that while he had some exposure to Christians and Christianity, he had never actually read the Bible he was arguing with. And so that was a transition point in our conversation. Where then I just posited to him, well, I believe eternity is at stake. And if you at least grant me that, would you at least check out what the Bible says and read it for yourself? Maybe begin in the Gospel of Mark. Maybe just start in the beginning of Genesis. And I provided him some helps and some other materials, but the main thing was, well, before you try to refute the Bible, maybe just try to honestly read it yourself. And I dared him to pray as he read it. There's a quote, and I've heard different versions of it. You've heard different versions of it, most likely. But there's a lot of truth to it. The quote is, you are the only Bible some unbelievers will ever read. And this particular version of the quote it goes on, and your life is under scrutiny every day. What do others learn from you? Do they see 
an accurate accurate picture of your God? Do they see an accurate picture of your God? Another way of saying it, somewhat related, by the media critic of decades ago, Marshall McCullen, he said, the medium is the message. You are the only Bible some unbelievers will ever read. For some, the only representation of the Christian faith they will ever encounter are those who claim to be Christians. This is similar to what the Apostle Paul said in his letter to the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. There were some who were demanding letters of recommendation that Paul was a true apostle, and his response was, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of human hearts. What is the apostle saying? He's saying, as the gospel ministered among you, it had effect. And so when someone demands that I bring a letter of recommendation, I say, look at those in whom the gospel has transformed their lives. Other translations said, you are to be living epistles. And this is part of the identity as Christians we are to embrace. And this is not the old saying, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. You've heard it explained that that is quite simply nonsense. It is ignoring the very clear testimony of Scripture that the Christian witness requires that we open our mouth and that we tell sinners that they're sinners and that Jesus is the only Savior for sinners and that we tell them that we are sinners saved by grace and we articulate the gospel to them. But as we tell them about the gospel's power to transform the sinner, to translate the sinner from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of Jesus Christ, then they should be able to then read our lives and say, I see it. I see it. I see the gospel's power, not perfect, but evident in you. And here in our passage, the apostle says, we are lights. It's not just a testimony that we are to bear to the light, but our very presence in the world is to be one that we are lights. And so that's what he helps us get at this morning. How is it that our lives support the testimony of the gospel and our witness? So just two things as we consider this passage. The first is that your personal Obedience is essential to your witness. Your personal obedience is essential to your witness. The second thing, your personal trust in the gospel is essential to your witness. And that's what I wanted to see from our passage this morning. Your obedience is essential to your witness. Your growth and sanctification is key to your witness. Because that's what the Apostle Paul has laid before is in verses 12 through 13. That God has saved us and he has working in us in order that our salvation might be worked out. That we might grow in Christ-likeness. That it might become more evident who we are in Christ in our lives. And then he comes to this first area of sanctification. He says, 
do all things without grumbling or disputing. The comprehensiveness of the command brought me back to my childhood when my mom would say, go take out the garbage. And I would go take out the garbage, but as soon as I turned that corner, the grumbling commenced. And often silently, me mouthing words I would dare never say in the presence of my parents, the grumbling lasted all the way to the curb. And maybe for some of you, your dad has said, help me shovel the driveway, or go shovel the driveway. And the grumbling began, and it didn't stop through the whole time. Here is a comprehensive command, do all things without grumbling or complaining. What does it mean to grumble? Well, it means to murmur. It means to be dissatisfied and to express it outwardly. And we see the word for grumbling and grumble used several different ways in the New Testament, and it kind of helps us kind of understand what's, what is grumbling. Well, one way we can understand it, and we see this in Matthew chapter 20, in the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, in verses 11 through 12, is that grumbling, it's selfish complaining. What happened in that, that parable? Well, the owner of the vineyard hired laborers, and he said, agreed to a price, and at the end of the day, you're getting this price. And then throughout the day, he kept hiring other laborers who came in, and they didn't work as long as the guys who came out there first, but at the end of the day, they all got paid the same amount. And so, what did Jesus say in his parable? And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. It's selfish complaining. Another way of understanding grumbling is that it's unbalanced criticism. Unbalanced criticism. This is what we see in some of the religious leaders towards Jesus. They didn't understand all that he was doing, and then they leveled criticism against him. And so it was an unbalanced criticism. For example, in Luke chapter 5, verse 30, And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, because his disciples were doing what Jesus had instructed them to do. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Well, the the Pharisees and scribes have a good point. What What is the righteous doing with the unrighteous? Why are you associating with these people who do not serve God? But it's an unbalanced criticism because they didn't understand the mission of Christ that Christ was there to rescue sinners, to be the great physician for the hurting and for the rebellious, and to bring them home to God, and in doing so, he would join them at a a meal. Not to join the world, but to draw them out of the world. It was an unbalanced criticism. A third way we see it in the New Testament is impatience and what is not understood. Impatience and what is not understood. Once again, we see this with the Jews and some of Jesus' teaching in John chapter 6, verse 41. There it says, So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Instead of the Jews saying, What are you talking about? Are you, you're saying you're the manna that God fed his people in the wilderness? Instead of saying, Explain that to me, Jesus. They, they grumbled and said, 
Who does he think he is? Impatience, because they didn't understand. Impatience and what is not understood. But a fourth way we see grumbling in the New Testament, we see it in Peter's epistle, 1 Peter. 1 Peter 4 verse 9. And in it we see that grumbling sometimes manifests itself in unwillingness to be helpful. So Peter says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. An unwillingness to be helpful. So what does that imply? That you can show hospitality, but kind of do it in the wrong way. And do it so grumbling. You can show hospitality, welcome someone, sacrificially serve them, provide for their needs, and yet you're like the adolescent Kevin grumbling on his way, taking the garbage out to the curb. And he says, no, you can do helpful actions, but if you're grumbling the whole time, that's a, you're missing the point. What is disputing? Disputing is related to grumbling. And immediately when we hear disputing, it's a good English translation. We, we think of the argument between two people or between in a law court, there being a dispute being settled. But the Greek actually begins with the, the trial going on in your head. The Greek word is a thought or an opinion. It's more of an inner attitude and activity. It's one of the mind and the heart. So it corresponds to grumbling, grumbling being the external expression of disputing that's going on in your head. What does that mean? It's the, the inner lawyer, the rehearsing of a, a tough conversation or a rehearsing of a wrong over and over in your head or the argument against someone. Now, when the apostle says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, he is not intending to negate righteous anger. Righteous anger is about God's honor and the honor of his word. Grumbling is about me. And so even when we are sinned against, there's a temptation that the enemy would use that in our life to produce grumbling and disputing. And it is a comprehensive command because grumbling will not be contained. Eventually, it permeates your entire outlook on life. And we see this in the nation of Israel. And Paul wants us to think about the nation of Israel as he's giving this command. There in the verse, it is... Verse 15, there at the end, there's a quote from Deuteronomy 32, 5. In verse 15, it says, we are to shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And this is lifted directly from the song of Moses at the end of Deuteronomy as Moses is preparing to depart. In Deuteronomy 32, 5, it says, they have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Now, who is Moses referring to? As he's preparing God's people to go into the promised land, he's referring to the generation that was lost in the wilderness. Those who were rescued from Egypt, but then because of their unbelief, they wandered 40 years in the wilderness. And then, what does he say there? He says, 
they have dealt corruptly with him, they are no longer his children. Because of their unbelief, they did not see the promised land and they were rejected. It's the apostate generation of the wilderness generation. And he says, they are a crooked and twisted generation. Well, what is that in, in reference to? Well, as God was bringing them through the wilderness, their unbelief was expressed in grumbling and disputing. And we see it in Exodus 16 that God is raining manna from heaven for them. And they say, that's nice, where's the meat? And so God heard their grumbling and in his graciousness and kindness to them, he offered them meat. But in doing so, in Exodus 16, 8, Moses said this, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him. And then Moses says reflectively, what are we? Meaning him and Aaron. The people have brought their, their grumbling to, to Moses and Aaron. And then Moses says, your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. It is a comprehensive command covering all of life because ultimately all things are from God. So when we grumble about what is happening in our life, eventually you have to take it back to God who is sovereign and in his providence, he has you right where he wants you. So if we're grumbling about work, roommates, our rickety car, an annoying professor, COVID restrictions, parents, elders, deacons, pastors, church staff. If we're grumbling about these things, we have to pause and remember, God is the one who gave me this job. God is the one who has provided these friends. God is the one who has placed me in this family. God is the one who has placed me in this church family. And here the apostle wants to see then, our sanctification in this area is key to our witness. We live in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. What was once said of apostate Israel is now applied to the whole unbelieving world. As they rejected God's lordship and care and providence for them in the wilderness, so now the whole unbelieving world rejects God's authority and rebels against his lordship. And when we grumble, we are raising our small objections to his lordship over all things and all things in our life. And therefore, it's difficult to distinguish the believer from the unbeliever when the believer's lips is filled with grumbling. But when we don't grumble, we are living and breathing epistles testifying that God is good and he can be trusted. As we saw in the life of ancient Israel, grumbling is contagious. And so in the life of the body, it is something that each of us has the task of sanctification to guard against grumbling coming out of our mouths. But it's not just for the sake of the unity of the church, it is for the church's witness in the community. Think about how a gospel witness is hindered 
If you're always by the coffee pot or water cooler or on the Zoom call complaining about your boss and grumbling about some assignment and carrying on this disposition of being dissatisfied and letting everyone know your frustrations and then you tell them of the joy of salvation, of the grace of God, of the forgiveness available through the cross. You want to tell that God can be trusted, but here you're complaining about everything that God has brought into your life. But he says that's not to be true of you, Philippians, and it's not to be true of us. That we are God's children and that we are to grow in blamelessness, in innocence, in the eyes of others. That others would not be, have an accusation against the faith we profess because they see it working in our lives. And he says that we are to be lights. You are lights. We don't just tell of the light, but those who have been brought into God's kingdom, we are now lights in this dark world. It's like the luminaries in the sky, the stars. This is the image that he's painted for us. This is what believers are in the midst of a twisted and crooked generation. Is that in the ancient world, they would use lights in the sky, the stars, to navigate in the darkness. It was their GPS. It was their map. And in the same way, that is our role and function until Christ returns in the world that they would connect the stars and it would point them to Jesus. Our personal sanctification and growth and obedience and our growth in not grumbling and disputing, our growth in following the apostles' example of having joy in all circumstances, content with a little or content with a lot, testifying that I can do all things and I can endure all things through Christ who strengthens me. Our growth in that is essential to our witness. But it's not just our obedience. It is our personal trust in the gospel that is essential to our witness. How do we shine as lights? We don't grumble. That's the negative command. Don't do this. But then there's positive instruction. Do this instead. How do we not grumble? By holding fast to the word of life. There's the beginning of verse 16. Hold fast to the word of life. It's the participle. Stop doing this and instead hold fast to the word of life. What is the word of life? It's God's word in its entirety, the total message of scripture. And when we come to the, the point of the Bible, it's the gospel. All of the Bible's message culminates in the gospel message. And so the word of life is the Bible and then supremely the gospel itself. We saw this a couple weeks ago, remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There the apostle Paul writes, now I would remind you brothers of the gospel I preached to you. So there it is, gospel which you have received in which you stand and which you are being saved. And then here it is, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Here the apostle says, hold fast to the word of life. And what he means is the word about eternal life 
and the word that produces life. The gospel. Hold fast to it. And it's this image of you're in the darkness and you have a lantern. And he's saying, keep that lantern close and keep it lit. Hold on to the gospel in such a way that you're in a pitch black forest, but you have a lantern and you have fuel. Why would you turn it off? The moment you turn it off, you lose your way. But if you keep it lit and hold fast to the word of life, you won't lose your way and you'll navigate yourself and others to the Savior. Your personal trust in the gospel is essential to your witness. As you call others to trust in Christ as their Savior, it needs to be evident that you are holding fast to the word of life. It's the key to contentment and not grumbling. And John Piper is very helpful. He gives us four ways from the context of the, just the book of Philippians alone to demonstrate how holding fast to the gospel helps us fight against grumbling and how it is the key to living content, joy-filled lives. So the first thing he points out, he says, look, the word of life promises that the outcome is secure. We hold fast to the gospel because in it, the outcome is secure. And so it counters our grumbling. Philippians 1.6, he says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel message. That once he saved you, he's not done with you and he will bring it to completion. And then he goes on further in chapter 1, verse 23, the apostle says, I am pressed between the two. My desire to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. The word of life promises him that the outcome is secure, that if he is to lose his life in prison, that if martyrdom is to come to the Apostle Paul, he embraces it because he will see his Savior face to face. That is the word of life that he is holding to and that he is calling us to hold to. The second thing is that the word of life promises that all pain of obedience is fully recompensed as Christ was recompensed. What does he mean? The word of life promises that all pain of obedience is fully recompensed. Obedience in this life will cost each of us something, and it will be difficult, and it will take striving and effort. And we can't do it apart from the Spirit's help. But here he's saying, look to the cross and be reminded that God, he will recompense the obedience of his people just as he did with Christ our Savior. In Philippians 2, 5 through 11, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And the point is that God rewarded that obedience. And so we should be certain that just as Christ was exalted by his humiliating obedience, so we too will be rewarded. And that is the word of life that we are holding on to. The third thing, the word of life promises that all seeming setbacks of life are turned for the glory of the gospel. 
All seeming setbacks of life are turned for the glory of the gospel. Philippians 1.12, in prison, the apostle says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Advance the gospel. He said, I had these plans. The Lord had other plans. And what I'm seeing, that the gospel still being advanced through these unexpected twists and turns. The straight and narrow oftentimes is difficult to follow where exactly the Lord is leading us and how exactly this is going to be for his glory in the advance of the gospel. But the word of life promises that we can be certain that all that is brought into our lives is not an occasion for grumbling, but it is an occasion for the advancement of the gospel. And then the fourth thing, the word of life promises that we already enjoy inestimable treasure in knowing Christ Jesus. See, as we hold to the gospel in the midst of difficult circumstances, we can let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, in the words of Martin Luther, because we have Christ. And that's what the apostle held out in Philippians 3.8. He says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. He says, take my coat, take my, my, my family, take my friends, take me away from the churches I love, the work I desire to do, but you can't take Christ from me. And therefore, I will not be given over to grumbling because in him I have the greatest treasure. Now this is a difficult part of the working out of our salvation, but as we hold fast to the word of life, we see what the Christian life looks like. There is striving and resting. Resting in the gospel, striving in sanctification. And our not grumbling will be a witness to the world but it requires effort. But we must never forget that all effort in the Christian life always comes in the context of grace. Everything that the Lord commands us to do, he provides for. Our sonship is not based on our obedience, but we, because we have been adopted into God's family, we obey. So back there in verse 15, it says that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. The apostles is not saying if you don't grumble, then you can qualify for adoption into God's family. He's saying because you're in the family of God, live out your identity in the world and it will be light. Our obedience is in the light of great grace. And this is contrary to what we have in the example of the wilderness generation that I spoke of earlier. Those who saw God's mighty deliverance from the hand of Pharaoh that then turned their back on the Lord and wandered and died in the wilderness. Their grumbling was on the heels of great deliverance and they were rejected for it. 
But in their grumbling, the Lord preached the gospel to Moses. In Exodus 16, they're complaining about and grumbling about meat. In Exodus 17, now it's water. They need water, and they're grumbling to Moses. And do you remember what happened? This is the first occurrence where Moses struck the rock with his rod, and water flowed forth. In it, God is preaching the gospel to Moses. Listen, Exodus 17, 3. But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking some of the elders and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. And the Lord tells Moses, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. The Lord very clearly says, I am not responding to their grumbling. This is not what their grumbling deserves. They deserve my blow. They deserve the strike. But instead of them, Moses, strike the rock. I'm standing on the rock. It's a picture of what the Messiah would do with Christ himself. Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. If you are not a Christian, you are angry at God, you're dissatisfied with your lot in life and what he has brought. You said, if he's Lord of all and this is what he brings in my life, I want nothing to do with God. This is the kind of God you were grumbling against. The kind that would come and die for the unbelief of sinners like you and I. The God who would take the blow himself that we deserve. If you find yourself outside of the kingdom of God, if you find yourself still wandering in the darkness and grumbling against God, there is only one Savior who died for your grumbling and who can reconcile you to the God that you have issue with. And it is Jesus. And each believer, we are to hold fast to what he's done for us in such a way that then we resemble him more and more. And that's what the Apostle Peter tells us to do in 1 Peter 2, 21 through 25. He says, For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself 
bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The word of life is that Jesus has died for our grumbling. And it is the gospel promise that gives us the strength not to grumble and live as lights in the darkness. Amen. Let's ask for God's blessing on the preaching of his word. Lord, your word is searching. It divides between joint and marrow, between soul and spirit, and we invite that searching, that you would uproot unbelief and murmuring and complaining in our hearts and minds, that it would not betray our gospel witness, and that our clinging to the gospel would so transform our hearts and lives that there would not be any hindrance to our light shining in the darkness. And that when we tell others of our eternal hope, our lives would not contradict it. We need your Spirit's help in all of this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.